0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode contains graphic depictions of physical, sexual, and emotional domestic abuse against children. Listener discretion is advised. A son lies in wait in his dark garage for dad to come home. Six shots ring out, and an abuser lies dead. This is Methoded Madness Episode 9, Let's Kill Dad. The Murder of Richard Janke. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. It was 1982 in Cheyenne, Wyoming, when 16-year-old Richard Janke Jr. spread weapons throughout his home, sister Deborah waiting as a backup. Any minute mom and dad would pull up the driveway and a few bullets would put an end to years of abuse. Let's dive in. Violence begets violence, argued defense attorney Terry Mackey. Today's story is about domestic violence, emotional and physical abuse, which ultimately led to patricide. How a lifetime of horror meant only one way out, murder. Let's go back to 1962, Army Private Richard Janke, originally from Chicago, was stationed in Puerto Rico when he met his future wife, Maria de Lourdes Rodriguez, on a bus. He had gotten lost while sightseeing and needed directions, and she was on her way to work, a night shift as a telephone operator. She had grown up in New York City but was living in Puerto Rico at the time and was flattered by the attention she was receiving from the charming, clean-cut gentleman He would later boast that he had met the prettiest girl on the island. They dated for 18 months. She found his confidence very attractive. Her friends, however, found that his constant calls and daily visits to Maria showed Richard as jealous and possessive. The pair married when she was 20 years old, and he 18. A few years later, they were blessed with a baby girl, Deborah, born in 1965, and the following year, a baby boy, Richard Jr., born in 1966. Anyone from the outside looking in would see a young couple with a toddler girl and baby boy, the perfect family. Because Richard Sr. was in the Army, his duties forced the family to move around a lot, and Maria, the devoted wife, was happy to oblige. Not long after their son was born, Richard Sr. was sent to Korea for a job with the Army, and he had to leave his family alone for some time. Because his work performance was declining, he was assigned some administrative work, a desk job, and when Richard Sr. returned from Korea a year later, his wife saw a distinct change in him. His temperament had changed. The man who had doted on his two babies now seemed different, agitated, and easily angered. Now, there's not much available information on Richard Janke Sr.'s background, what his childhood was like, but it's very possible that this part of his personality, this darker side of him that Maria saw come out, was actually always there underneath. Over the next several years, as Richard and Maria raised their two children, they lived in army barracks, small houses, and apartments all over the U.S., including California, Arizona, Washington, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, and they even spent two years overseas in Germany. Around the time that Richard Jr. was two years old, the beatings began. Richard Sr. seemed to be set off by anything. Whatever he perceived as a slight to him, a broken rule, he took it as disrespect. That typical stress of working and raising a family was not something he could handle. He was easily provoked and had an obsession with guns and security that began to move toward paranoia. When Richard Jr. was very young, he responded to the smacks to his back or his head as one would expect a toddler or preschooler to behave after being hit. He would run from his father screaming and crying while his mother would look the other way. Once in a while, she would hide her son in a closet if her husband had lost his temper. As Richard Jr. got older, as an adolescent, the beatings would get worse. Harder punches, closed fists, often with Richard Sr. pinning him down on the floor or against a wall. Discipline in the Janky home meant there was hell to pay, and for whatever reason, whether it be his own insecurities, a mental illness, or maybe his own abusive childhood, Richard Janky Sr. was a complete bully. The abuse toward Deborah started when she was around four years old. Her father would get enraged by the smallest thing, Deborah misspelling her name on her lunch bag, leaving crayons lying around, or making too much noise. He would slap her, push her, pull her hair, whip her with a belt, and punch her. And the beatings would take place about twice a week. As she grew older, her father would call her insults like slut and displayed disgust at her acne. Eventually, he began to sexually abuse her. He would walk in on Deborah while she was in the shower and pull back the curtain. Richard Jr. witnessed their father touching Deborah inappropriately, groping her, and lying on top of her while she was in bed at age 11. Once, Richard Sr. casually walked past Deborah in the kitchen and put his hand down her pants. Maria witnessed some of this and ignored it, pretended it wasn't happening, or blamed Deborah for the abuse, said it was her daughter's fault for wearing shorts in front of her father. Richard Jr., however, wasn't willing to let it go and couldn't bear watching his sister be tortured. He would stand up to his father, confront him, and order him to leave Deborah alone. Unfortunately, those confrontations also Resulted in more beatings. Richard Sr. didn't spare his wife of the beatings either. He would punch and shove Maria and call her a slut or degrade her with racial slurs. While his beatings were terrifying, he never did enough damage that would send Maria, Richard Jr., or Deborah to the hospital. It was as if he would stop himself before it got to that point, ensuring that nobody would find out what was really going on behind closed doors. And his threats worked. He would warn his family that if they were to tell anyone, it would only get worse. Maria never spoke a word of the abuse to anybody throughout all of the years she endured the beatings, and she watched her children as they were abused as well. She was too scared to go to the police for fear of her children being taken away from her, something her husband had threatened her with constantly while telling her what a terrible, horrible mother she was. She continued to put up with the cruel insults and tried her best to pretend like what was happening to her kids wasn't a reality. The only time she brought up divorce to her husband, he apologized and talked her into staying. All the while, Maria would forgive him and stand by her man. By the time Richard Jr. was 12 years old, He witnessed such a severe beating of his mother that he yelled at his father to never touch her again. Richard Sr., who was punching Maria while she cowered on the floor, turned and ran after Richard Jr. and beat him, begged him to fight back. He never laid a hand on Maria again after that night. Maria, most likely as a result of being a battered wife, was so dedicated to hiding the abuse that was going on under her own roof that she would send the kids to school in clothing that would hide their bruises, turtlenecks, long sleeves, etc. And at one point when the family had lived in Arizona, the kids were teased and seen as strange as they were always dressed way too warmly for the hot Arizona sun. The children had a tough time acclimating to their constant changing of schools and found it difficult to make connections with anyone. They were ashamed, conscious of their bruises, and found it hard to trust others. In 1981, when Deborah was 16 and Richard 15, the Janke family moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming for Richard Sr.'s job, where he was training as a criminal investigator with the Internal Revenue Service. It seemed they finally had a place where they would settle down. They lived in a one story home on upscale cowpoke road, prairies on either side of the country road, grasslands spread as far as the eyes could see, their own backyard, a plain set against an endless blue sky. It was the perfect environment for Richard Sr., who was spending most of his paycheck on guns and was teaching his son how to hunt. Now in their new home, Richard Sr. continued to set strict rules and harsh punishments, running the house like a prison, Alcatraz, as Maria called it. He was almost always armed with a gun, like the watchful guard roaming the halls, ensuring everything was in order, patrolling the backyard as if he were waiting for an enemy to cross over the lines. He carried a gun with him while walking to the bathroom, while eating breakfast, while driving to work. He slept in the laundry room on a cot next to his gun cabinet. Neighbors would stop by to welcome the family to the neighborhood, but Richard Sr. would barely open the door a crack and treat his neighbors like they were door to door salesmen, telling them, no thank you, and abruptly excusing himself back into the house. Strict guidelines were laid out whether it would be etiquette at the dinner table. Richard Sr. hated the sounds of silverware hitting a plate. To hygiene. If he thought the kids hadn't brushed their teeth well, he would brush their teeth for them so roughly that their gums would bleed. He'd pull Deborah by the hair and drag her into the bathroom to scrub her face clean. Now, teenagers, the kids would be subjected to disgusting insults, called names like ugly bastard, stupid bitch, and fucking crybaby. It was relentless. And Dad was constantly angry, paranoid, and violent. One positive note was that Richard Jr. seemed to be fitting in better at his new school, Central High School, and inheriting his father's interest in guns, he joined the school's ROTC, a program that offered students with training to eventually become officers in the military. He saw school as a reprieve from his private hell, and ended up making friends and even began dating, although his father had a strict rule that no friends were allowed inside the house. He certainly wasn't going to allow the curtain to be pulled back. Deborah was doing a little bit better in her new school, too, making friends, though she was forbidden from going out on dates or even driving a car. She would show up to school with bruises on her arms and once a black eye that she had tried to cover up with makeup. She confided in a friend that her father had sexually abused her and shared with some other friends some of the examples of physical and emotional abuse that were going on at home. But Deborah had gained a bit of a reputation for what kids at school called a dramatic personality. She had once talked about a friend in Arizona that had died by suicide, but when it came out that that was a lie, people found it hard to think of Deb as very trustworthy. The school staff thought that Deborah needed counseling. She was described as often erupting into a fit of hysterical laughter, speaking in an English accent, and while she didn't lack intelligence, she came across as younger than she was. Things came to a head on May 2, 1982, when Richard Jr. was falling behind on doing some of his chores. Enraged, his father threw Richard down the basement stairs and gave him such a beating that dad himself got a nosebleed. This was a turning point for Rich Jr., who escaped from his father and managed to run out of the house, desperate to get some help. He was just 15 years old, and nobody, it seemed, was coming to rescue him. He made his way to the home of Major Robert Vevgary, his ROTC instructor, but he didn't have the courage to knock on the door. His father's figurative grip still wrapped around his wrist. A few minutes later, Major Vevgari saw Richard crying out near the street and brought him down to the sheriff's office. A complaint was then filed against Richard Sr. While Richard Jr. was filing the complaint, the sheriff's officer made a call to the janky home and told the parents to come down immediately. Rich Sr., Maria, and Deborah all arrived at the sheriff's office, and Rich Sr. downplayed the events that were taking place at home. Richard Jr. was informed that if he wanted to stay somewhere else that night, he could. They could let him sleep in the county jail. But he opted to go home with his family, knowing that if he wasn't there, the repercussions of the complaint would be worse, and things would surely be taken out on his mother and sister. Rich Jr. left the sheriff's office that night, feeling like the authorities didn't really believe him regarding the extent of the abuse he and his sister were suffering. The deputy who took the complaint wrote in his report that, quote, Mr. Janky seems to have an explosive temper and a hard time controlling it. Mrs. Janky appears to be completely dominated by her husband. He also noted that it was a minor case compared with other domestic abuse cases he had seen. Meanwhile, as the Yankees left the sheriff's department, Richard Sr. turned to his son, called him a bastard, and told him, you're ruining my marriage. A week later, a social worker visited the janky home to follow up on the complaint. It was noted in the report written that day that the situation had improved, although neither of the children had been interviewed without the presence of their parents. How much could really be gained? How can the kids speak freely when Richard Sr. was standing over everyone's shoulders? On two more occasions, the social worker followed up by phone, talking to Maria each time, who told him that everything at home was fine. But, of course, it wasn't fine. Richard Sr. was so incensed that his son had filed a complaint that he continued to beat him and once warned him that if he ever tried to report anything again, that he would, quote, give him something to talk to the sheriff about, that is, if he could still speak. From that day on, Richard Jr. created a barricade in his bedroom so he could sleep without worrying about his father coming in in the middle of the night just to start another beating. It was the only peace at home that he could find. Down the hall, Deborah barely slept, and when she did, She was plagued by nightmares. She struggled to keep her eyes open at school and planned for her departure from home to be that next summer. After graduation, she was looking forward to going off to college. But Dad was not going to pay for it, and to keep his grip on her and his money in his pocket, or to put it towards guns, he wanted her to stay home and go to community college. Richard Jr. weighed his options as well. He still had a while before he was to graduate from high school and fantasized about killing his dad all the time. There were guns everywhere in the house. The idea of using one of them on his father was a constant thought. It was becoming a struggle of, quote, him or me. It was living in constant fear, and despite his growing up, he was still no physical match compared to his father. He couldn't bear the belittling, the insults, watching his sister be hurt nobody helping them. The thought of killing his father was consuming him. Finally, it was Tuesday, November sixteenth, 1982, the 20th anniversary of the day that Richard Sr. and Maria met, and the last day that Richard Sr. would see the light of day, the last day that anyone in the janky house would feel his wrath. That afternoon, Richard Jr. and his mother argued about Rich Sr., and all that they were going through while living with him. Frustrated by his mother's complacency, Richard went to cool off in his room. Once Dad came home from work with a bouquet of flowers in one hand, Maria informed him that his son had been disrespectful and talked back to her. Deborah insisted that what Maria was saying was lies, that Richard hadn't done anything like what their mother was saying. Regardless, Richard Sr. was furious that his son was giving his wife quote-unquote sass, and he went and took it out on him, violently. After what would be the last time that Richard Sr. beat anyone, he watched as his wife put the bunch of carnations in a vase, gushing about the flowers her husband had brought home for her, hugging and kissing him, telling him how good he was to her. To celebrate their anniversary, Mom and Dad were heading out for an early dinner. Before leaving for the restaurant, Richard Sr. told his son, What a disgusting piece of shit you turned out to be. I don't want to see you here when I get back. We're going to get rid of you. We don't know how we're going to, but we're going to get rid of you. Once their parents were out of the house, Rich Jr. told his sister Deborah that tonight was the night he was going to kill their father. While Mr. and Mrs. Janke dined at a Mexican restaurant, Richard Jr. explained his plan to his sister that with their parents gone for a few hours, he was going to prepare himself with enough of dad's weapons to ensure that his mission would be successful no matter what. Richard Jr. recalled a scene in the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Conan the Barbarian, where Conan anticipates an attack on himself and spreads weapons around so that he could easily defend himself as needed. Richard's plan was to get into Dad's gun cabinet and put a weapon in each room. He placed a rifle in the basement, a rifle in the family room, a Colt forty-five pistol under his bed, a shotgun on top of the ping-pong table. Then, he moved the family's two dogs and cat out of their usual place in the garage and put them in the basement out of harm's way. Richard would lie in wait in the garage with the lights out and shoot his father when his parents arrived home from dinner. He asked Deborah to stay inside the house with a gun to serve as a backup if dad started shooting back or in case Rich Jr. chickened out. Deborah hesitated. She asked if this was really necessary, and tried to persuade her brother to just run away instead, they could both just leave. But Richard insisted, saying that nothing was ever going to change. This was the only way to make it all go away. Richard turned off the lights in the garage, kept the lights on inside the house, and changed into a dark shirt so he wouldn't be seen. It was minutes before their parents would be home, and before getting into their positions, Deborah asked if he was planning on killing mom too. When Richard replied with no, Deborah responded, can you? The sun had disappeared on the prairie on that Tuesday evening. Inside the homes along Cowpoke Road, families were sitting down to dinner, children starting their homework. And inside the janky home, Deborah walked from room to room anxiously waiting for those headlights to pull into the driveway. Occasionally, she would glance down at the gun on the living room couch, her pulse racing, hoping she didn't have to use the weapon that her brother had taught her to use only moments before. A few steps away in the garage, Richard Jr. stood in the dark with the doors closed. Leaning against the family station wagon, his eyes glued to the garage door window, He could see straight out to the driveway, but he was pretty sure nobody would be able to see him. He was armed with his dad's thirty-eight revolver, two speed loaders devices used to quicken the time it takes to reload, a knife and a sawed-off shotgun, weapons that his father had taught him to use. In his mouth was his ROTC whistle. And then at 6.30 p.m. the moment came. Down the street and into the driveway, Richard Janky Sr. drove his Volkswagen Beetle, his wife in the seat next to him. Upon seeing the garage door closed, he stopped the car and put it in park, muttering to Maria something about the kids closing the garage door, and he exited the car. From inside the garage, Richard Jr. watched, threw some slats in the door, waited for his father to walk forward, and at the perfect moment, blew into the whistle in his mouth, and pulled the trigger until the gun was empty. Two bullets ripped through the window of the garage door. Four more bullets ripped through panels in the door. Richard Sr. was down, lying on the driveway now. Maria jumped out of the car and ran to her husband, screaming, knelt next to him, and wept. Richard Jr. ran inside and told his sister, I did it. Let's get the hell out of here. They crawled out the master bedroom window, dropped to the ground below, and began running toward the prairie into the night that had dropped into freezing temperatures. Deborah dropped the gun she had been gripping in her hand and kept running, her adrenaline pumping, the screams of her mother fading behind her as she got further away across the prairie. The prairie that by day was a breathtaking view, but on that night was an escape from hell, a night that lie against a moonless sky with no light to guide her. Richard lost his sister in the dark and ended up at his girlfriend's house a few blocks away, telling her stepfather that he had just killed his father because of things that he had been doing and things that had been done in the past. Meanwhile, Deborah came across two of her friends near a local shopping mall and told them what her brother had just done. They helped her find a safe place to spend the night and she settled into the warmth of an apartment building clubhouse, the first night's sleep that she wasn't kept awake wondering if he was going to open the door. But back on Cowpoke Road, back to six thirty p.m., Maria was next to the body of her husband, who had suffered gunshot wounds to his back, chest, and buttocks, after running inside and dialing nine one one. Maria saw that her children were gone and noticed a gun on the couch. When first responders arrived, one of the officers that walked up that driveway had already met the Jankies in May, when Richard Jr. had filed that report on his father. After attempts were made to save Richard Janky's life, it was obvious that nothing could be done. At 38 years old, he was dead. Autopsy results later would show that the bullet to the chest did the most damage to his rib cage, liver, diaphragm, and aorta, as it had followed a fatal trajectory. Given the crime scene, the guns spread about the house, the lack of a break-in, the missing children. The police were pretty sure they knew who to be looking for. They began searching for Richard Jr. and were soon called to pick him up at his girlfriend's home. He was arrested and charged with premeditated murder. The next day, police picked up Deborah, who had been walking aimlessly through a park. She was interviewed for three hours without the presence of a lawyer. She had initially agreed to speak without one. And here are a few excerpts of her statement. Quote, My intentions were just very simply, I'm not a violent person. The only time I would ever strike anybody or do anything like that actively as if it's either in self-defense or to defend somebody else. My father, in the past, extensively carried a firearm with him almost wherever he went. My father has a very, very short temper. He's very irrational. He's very irate. And I've seen him just get hysterical over tiny, teeny little things. And he would get hysterical and beat up on people, beat up on all three of us. I thought, oh my God, what if he's armed? What if he pulls it out on my brother? What if he shoots him? What if he goes after me? At that point, definitely, yes, I would have shot him, but only as a very last resort. If he just came at me and didn't have any firearms or something like that, I would have just put the weapon down and just took off. She was then arrested for aiding and abetting her brother. It was during that interview that Deborah told investigators everything that she and her brother had gone through and that she never left home, never ran away, because she felt she owed it to her brother to stay, owed it to the brother who had always tried to protect her. Police didn't have much on her. Her her fingerprints were not on any of the guns that had been used to shoot her father. In fact, the only solid detail against her was her own admission that she had wanted Richard to kill their mother, too. Soon the trials began. Richard, who was charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, was up first. What the case at trial essentially boiled down to was, did the years of physical and psychological abuse by Richard Janke Sr. justify the crime of petricide? Was it considered self-defense? That was what Richard Jr. was claiming. The trial began on February 14, 1983, after a motion to move the case to juvenile court was denied, despite the defendant being just 16 years old. One thing that came out at trial, the director of Wyoming's Department of Health and Social Services completed an investigation into the handling of Richard's original abuse report. What was found was that the original case was handled poorly and that Ironically, if the kids had run away from home, they would have been considered runaways and actually would have been protected. The DA of Laramie County argued that patricide is, quote, one of the most horrible things a person can do. And he was heavily criticized for his refusal to recognize the child abuse in the case and seemed to only be focused on painting Richard Janke Jr. as a monster. Maria Janke's testimony at trial was met with various reactions, including skepticism. She backed her children on the years of abuse and the fear they all had towards Richard Sr. However, the evidence presented showed that she also would report to her husband any time her children would quote-unquote sass her, knowing that by reporting that it would result in violent repercussions. Additionally, Maria was scrutinized for going to dinner with her husband the night he was murdered, which to some indicated that she was complicit after he had just threatened his son that he was going to get rid of him. Others argued that this was textbook behavior of a woman abused over a number of years. After all, despite her failure to protect her kids, she herself was a victim. Five days after the start of the trial, the case was handed over to the jury who came back with a verdict of not guilty to the charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, but a verdict of guilty to the charge of first-degree murder of the lesser offense of voluntary manslaughter. Richard was sentenced to 5 to 15 years at the state penitentiary. He appealed his conviction on the grounds that, among other things, the judge in the case had not permitted testimony of a forensic psychiatrist who would have spoken on his expertise regarding the self-defense used by Richard Jr. There were also some claims surrounding jury selection and the improper questioning of prospective jurors with regard to whether they believed all murder was wrong, no matter the reasoning or justification. The appeal resulted in the imposed sentence being affirmed. In a separate trial held three weeks after her brother's sentencing, Deborah Janke was found guilty of aiding and abetting her brother and sentenced to three to five years in the Women's Correctional Center. She also appealed, but the result ended in her conviction and sentence being affirmed. In June of 1984, when Richard Jr. was 18 years old, Wyoming Governor Ed Hershler commuted the sentence of five to 15 years in prison to three years in a juvenile facility. He received an enormous amount of mail and phone calls from the public who had been fascinated, shocked, and horrified by what they were seeing in the media. They were urging for the governor to free Richard Yankee, but he had said it was not the public that influenced him in his decision. He simply felt a great deal of compassion for the teen and felt it was something he needed to do. Additionally, he commuted Deborah's sentence, and she was sent to a youth center and released in 1985. History has taught us that parricide, the act of killing a parent, is one of the worst sins to commit. Murdering the very person that brought you into this world is a crime that has shocked human beings for centuries. Persian princess Amistrine was drowned by her two sons in 284 B.C., in order for them to take over the ruling of the city of Heraclea. In 1971, John List of Westfield, New Jersey, murdered his mother, wife, and children and changed his identity, hiding as a fugitive for 18 years before being caught, all in an effort to hide that he was heavily in debt, a failure that couldn't support his family. And of course, perhaps the most modern case of parricide was the 1989 murder of Kitty and Jose Menendez by their sons, Lyle and Eric, who claimed years of sexual abuse. The difference in their case and the Jenkins case being that the Menendez brothers were legally adults when they committed murder, and Lyle wasn't even living at home anymore. The prosecutor in that case argued that their motive was the large sum of money they would receive as the sole heirs to their parents' estate. But in the case of the Jankies, the question in Wyoming, the question at the trial, and even the question asked by true crime junkies today is, was the homicide of Richard Yankee Sr. justified? Let's break it down. The evidence is there in spades that years of abuse went on in the Yankee home. Long before the murder occurred, friends of the kids were told about the horrors that went on inside that house. Teachers were aware and Deborah was offered counseling. A formal complaint was made with the sheriff's department, and anyone who knew the children could see the bruises and the worst scars of all, the emotional ones that they couldn't hide under high-necked clothing. It takes a village, and it seems this village had failed the janky kids. If violence begets violence, is it all that shocking for Richard Jr. to have committed patricide? What had he learned his whole life? What was the example that he was shown? What other option did he have? Wait things out until he turned 18? Run away from home, knowing that his mother and sister would bear the brunt of his actions? What had he been raised to do? Certainly not problem-solving or conflict resolution skills. He was raised in a home where discipline was severe and nobody was on his side. Nobody except another child, his sister. Who can really say what would have happened if Richard Jr. and Deborah had simply escaped the violence? While it's unclear exactly what became of the Janke family beyond the mid-80s, I do hope the best for all three of them, hope that they have found their peace, and hope that long ago, they were able to leave their fear behind. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a review wherever you listen. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741. To seek help for emotional and physical abuse, see the show notes for resources.